Hey, thank you for worshiping with us. And if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 2 this morning as we are in week 2 of a three-week study in the book of Ruth, which I've uh, been very excited about this study through Ruth for quite a while. We've never done one of these on Sunday mornings, um, which uh, really a shame, should have uh, done it a long time ago, but I'm glad the Lord has led us to the book for this season. Uh, if you missed last week, it's like missing the first part of a movie, but if you've read the first chapter of Ruth, you probably know what's going on, but I think we'll get caught up pretty quickly. But I gotta say, I've had so many, and I don't just say this, but I say this a lot, but I really mean it this time. I don't actually say this a lot, so that's, uh, um, I have had so many jaw-dropping moments in preparation for this series of messages, more than I've ever had and more than I've had in a long time. Um, you know, God's Word is so good, I can't, I can't promote the Bible enough. I can't promote Christianity enough. Um, not every preacher always gets it right. Not every church always has great services each and every week, but let me just tell you this, God's Word is so good. And some might communicate it better than others. Some might preach it better than others, but it's all right here. I mean, it's, it's right here for everybody. We've all got the same copy. We've all got access to the same word. And, and, and thank God he's with all of us as much as we want him. He's with us. And, and my studies, as I've had more uh, than one moment recently where I just look up to heaven and I just think it was there the whole time, I, I just now figured it out. Uh, and, and, and that's an incredible experience that I have with God's Word over and over again, and I can't tell you enough, I can't promote it enough, read your Bibles, go to a church that teaches the Bible and brings out the God you can know and leads you to being like Him, because there's nothing better uh, than to experience the God of the Bible through Jesus Christ, through a relationship that you can have only through Jesus Christ. So I'm thankful that we can be here today and we can talk about our God around His Word, open book with the Spirit of God teaching us. And I'm really thankful for this time together in Ruth that we've got. Um, the book of Ruth is really um, one of the secret most important books of the Bible. I say secret because it's kind of tucked away and we kind of write it off as the fairy tale of the Bible, and we don't really pay much more attention to it than that. Uh, but really, Ruth is like a mini Bible within the Bible, as in it's four chapters that really uh, convey what the entire Bible is telling us from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, appropriate and fitting, I think, that the smallest books of the Bible is still able to capture the larger message that God is trying to get across through his word. Uh, so, of course, every book, every page of every book communicates his redemption story, but Ruth stands out above the rest. And, and I think the reason for that is, the, the reason is Ruth, the book and the, the timeline for Ruth, Ruth sits at a crossroads in history. I think that's, that's an appropriate way to kind of contextualize this book. It's between some major events. It's kind of in the middle of the uh, establishment of Israel and really the flourishing of Israel as a nation. But it's in a point in history when that wasn't certain. It's at a point in history when the Israel experiment was failing, that it wasn't coming together as God had intended, and they had messed up more than once. Uh, the nations of the world all stand around Israel with their arrows drawn and their swords drawn. The majority of the world was turning away from God, had turned away from God, bowing towards some other lesser deity. Ruth captures the moment in history when it should have been over for Israel. And I can't make that more clear. Israel had messed up so royally that there shouldn't have been another chance for them. Uh, God should have washed his hands of it all. All hope should have been lost, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. Every plan that God had implemented had failed. 
Not because of him, mind you. Plan after plan fell through. And despite all of that, he still manages to call people out to himself. He still manages to use Israel to topple the evil empire of Egypt, to show the world there is one God, his name is Yahweh, and that there is a way out of idolatry and out of sin. Despite Israel not cooperating, he still is able to do that through this upstart nation. Through Israel, the world was getting to witness the one true God. And after leading them by the hand out of bondage, feeding them and caring for them across a 40-year-long slog through the desert, he washes their past away and he established them as their own sovereign nation. Yet, as we talked about last week, as Joshua passed away and the nation was established At Israel's best, they spin their wheels. They never really get it. Even though Joshua conquers their enemies, he establishes the judges, he puts them in the place that they should be, they have everything they need, and at their best, they spin their wheels. Until by the end of Judges, they eventually start digging their own grave. We looked at perhaps the most dark and demented episode of Israel's history last week in Judges 19 which takes place right at the beginning of Ruth, around the same time as Ruth. Uh, What should have been the end of Israel, the doom of Israel, not only Israel, but the whole world, all of humanity showed they were no better and really were irredeemable. The world, the human race, was past the point of no return, beyond its expiration date, on its deathbed, really. And yet then comes the book of Ruth. Now, don't get me wrong, Ruth isn't the Savior, but it's unto Ruth, and it's through Ruth that God chooses to show that there is a redemption plan. It's through the redemption plan that he begins with Ruth, really, that the world gets another chance. Now, maybe you're wondering, why Ruth? What was, what was so special about Ruth? Well, there's a lot of reasons why Ruth is such a, an, a unique figure and why it seems that God was, everything was lining up for her to be the one that God would really begin this redemption plan through. Uh, again, if you'll remember last week, and if you know the story behind Ruth and her nation and where she came from and what Israel had just been through, there's a lot to the background and backstory of Ruth. We talk about how the sin of Sodom, not just in the days of Lot, but repeated by the people of Israel in Judges 19. The backdrop of Ruth is the sin of Sodom, the folly of Lot that gave rise to the nation of Moab. This thorn of Moab that was always a perennial enemy of Israel. And then we read about and we talked about the religious and moral breakdown of Israel. And again, a repeat of the sins of the pagans as Israel proved no better than the ones that God had made them distinct from. People begin to wonder, what was God's next move? What what good could come out of any of these things as they all culminated? Let me go ahead and say this. I emphasize Israel's folly only to highlight the fact that God was not about to break his covenant with Israel. He had a plan for them. He was committed to them, even though they didn't do anything to deserve it, which is kind of the point. His love for them would be loyal to the uttermost. And we kind of teased that out last week. But here's the thing about God's loyal love, particularly in the light of and in the face of sin and evil. Love, God's love especially, loyal love is not blind. As in, it doesn't just pretend bad things don't happen. It doesn't, it's not ignorant. As in, it doesn't, just, it doesn't turn away from things that are going wrong when, it's pe- when the thing that it loves or the people that it loves do wrong. It's very much aware of what's going on, and it's actively working to counter it. And here's what makes God's love so rare and so higher than what we could ever imagine. 
Because our reaction to sin and folly and brokenness is not at all what God's is. And we want this to be our reaction, but we, would never, we can never react as purely as He does. See, loyal love does not pretend sin doesn't happen. See, some people, maybe you've, you've lived like this. You just, the way you get over things, you just pretend it didn't happen. And you'd hope that you kind of can just move on. But God's love doesn't pretend it didn't happen. And it doesn't avenge sin when it happens, which is what we do, isn't it? We get even. We say, well, you did that, I'll do this, but I still love you. And we really are kind of, you know, lying to ourselves and to the other person. Because love doesn't avenge when it's wronged. But God's love does not pretend it didn't happen. It does not avenge it when it happens. Loyal love is something different. God's loyal love counters sin with a very unique approach. God makes his goodness greater than sin's vileness. As in, when sin proves itself to be so vile and so wicked and so unstoppable even, God's loyal love, God moves in and makes his goodness greater than the vileness of sin. Now, how so? God's reaction to our sin has always been to juxtapose, as in come alongside for contrast. Come alongside to offset. He contrasts our nature with his nature. In the aftermath of our failure, God often intensifies his favor. Again, this makes no sense. It's not what you and I would do, or it's not what we do. But in the aftermath of our failure, God often intensifies his favor. To show us that we had no good reason to do what we did, to invite us to come back to him and raise our level of accountability as well. So we, would, so we would not walk away again. Now, that's what God is doing through Ruth and in Ruth. That's why God is doing to, going to do what he does through Ruth with all these underpinnings and, and all that's on the spotlight or all that the spotlight is on, almost anticipating judgment, expecting judgment. In this microcosm of human history, all people had fallen away. Now people are literally walking away from Israel to foreign pagan lands like the place in the nation of Moab. This story features all these underpinnings, all of these threads coming together and meeting in the person and purpose of Ruth. As Israel commits a Sodom-level sin, yet avoiding judgment, the nation wonders what will come next, and God brings a daughter of Moab into the land. Now, we've got to talk about Moab for a minute, the Moab element, because we just briefly touched on this. It plays such a big factor in what God is doing here. The people of Moab worshipped a god called Kamosh. Now, we'll talk about him in a minute. I say worship because nobody did it excitedly, as in nobody was excited or looking forward to worshipping this god. They did so in total fear and under duress. They only did so because they felt there would be major consequences if they didn't. Now, this will help make some sense of all this. Kamash was the Moabite deity, the Moabite god. Um, the name, his name in the Moabite language literally means the destroyer or the subduer. Uh, so the people of Moab, their religion was really a bondage. Uh, the people, their legends, their traditions all spoke of how they were indebted to Kamash. And to keep this beast happy, they had to feed him lest they be consumed by him. So it wasn't some loving relationship. It was a fearful relationship. Now, this was the way most ancient religions worked, but Moab maybe felt the pressure that came along with this the most. 
Uh, because remember, the people of Moab, they were born under and into oppression. Their origin story was one of bondage and sorrow. Their religion, no doubt, developed around this shame and this stigma they had as a people from the beginning. And also, we know that the people of Moab lived to be a thorn in the sight of Israel because it was Israel that seemed to bring up their origin more than anyone. Because Israel knew the real story. Israel knew that they were from the seed of Lot because of Lot's own embarrassment and his own sin with his own family. That's why they existed, and Israel liked to make them aware of that and liked to embarrass them and humiliate them and make it very clear to them that they had no portion in Abraham's story, that they were outcasts, they were black sheeps, they were the enemy. And Moab lived up to that enemy role. Now, if you zoom out past these two nations, Moab was just one of several dozen Gentile nations in the world at the time. All of them were entangled in this pantheon of cultic religions which promised the moon but only ever delivered the grave. All of them were scorned by Israel for being delusional, even though Israel proved to be no better. And even though God was loyal to them, they were not loyal to him. And that's what makes Moab's inclusion in the story and Ruth becoming a part of the story so important. Moab is a stand-in for the rest of the Gentiles, this outsider looking in, longing for something better than what she had, being told there was no place for her in the story. Naomi doesn't even think there's a place for Ruth in the story. Remember, she says to, Naomi, just says to Ruth back in chapter 1, I pray the Lord deal kindly with you, but I don't think you should come back with me because you're not going to be welcome with me because you're a Moabite. And we see just how kind God was who surprised Naomi even because he so kindly welcomed Ruth into the land just as he would eventually, through Ruth, welcome the whole world into the family of God. And this moment is also to teach Israel that they too were only on the inside because of the kindness of God. In Ruth, we see both people groups conjoin, come together, and going forward, it's clear that God is doing a work for both Jew and Gentile based on and rooted in his loyal, loving kindness. Don't forget that. Naomi hoped Ruth would see the kindness God was showing his people, but little did she know Ruth was about to become one of his own people. When she returns to the land at the end of chapter 1, Ruth, or when she comes to the land, Ruth's Moabite ethnicity is a glaring mark on her. It's mentioned a couple of times in that verse. Ruth would have been you know, looked down upon, but because Naomi was an aging widow and Ruth was her caretaker, she was tolerated. But chapter 2 tells a story about Ruth being much more than tolerated. It's a story of her being celebrated, her being adorned with a kindness unheard of for someone like her. Because she comes face to face with, she comes under the favor of, she comes into the field of a one-of-a-kind man. A man that seemed too good to be from this world, and that's what the first half of Ruth 2 is all about. So as we read these first 13 verses, I want you to pay attention to the references to kindness and favor that are made, and pay attention to how Ruth reacts to just how good she has it in a land that should not have had a place for someone like her. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1 begins, and this is just for us to be aware. This isn't really, they don't know this yet. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. That's kind of in parentheses. And now the story continues. 
So Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. She she didn't know if she was going to find a place that they could find food from, but she was hopeful. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. And again, she doesn't know this. And now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to the servants who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Or, you know, where is she from and why is she here? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Notice, no one knows her name. Her name was in the Moabite language, so she would not have told it. She couldn't even speak Hebrew. So that's very important because we don't find out that Boaz learned her name until much later. Verse 7, Please let, and she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not, glean, do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they have reaped. Go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, and how you left your father and mother in the land of your birth, and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work, and fully reward be given you, by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, let me find favor in your sight, for you have comforted me and you have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. A couple of things. There's two big institutions that we got to talk about to understand just how amazing this text is. Again, verse one is important because of Ruth's current condition. As we're told, because uh, we're told that she has, um, or Naomi has a relative that really could help Ruth's situation out. Now, let me explain why this is important. In the ancient world, women had virtually no rights, they were very vulnerable. It's hard to explain, but it's easy to detect, as in, it's hard to explain why that was so, but when you read history, it's easy to see that it was so. Uh, it's bewildering, but it's believable when you read history and see how things went. If you study ancient civilizations, economics, religions, they all have one thing in common. They were spearheaded by men, and they saw women as commodities. Every ancient religion, except Judaism, every ancient religion except Judaism subjected women at the leisure of men. So if religion positioned women this way, you can imagine how general society treated them. So when you read the Old Testament, if our modern minds think some of the policies and agendas are a bit odd, and if you as a woman find them a little bit difficult to understand, just know that in the Old Testament, God was doing radical, revolutionary things to infuse equality and justice into creation. Something that would not happen overnight in a world that was dominated by the opposite. Therefore, in God's efforts to raise women's status to equal with men, he built into the law extreme measures to help protect and support women, especially widows. 
So as to keep them from becoming homeless or succumbing to even worse, to ensure that they retain the benefits of their husband's estates, widows were to pursue relationships with a relative of their deceased husband, and a relative couldn't claim the man's property without also marrying his widow. Now, in the Jewish custom, this was called the Leveret, the Leveret Marriage Clause, and you've heard it referred to um, as the kinsman redeemer. Uh, the Hebrew word is goel. Um, I, I know it sounds complicated, but in a world that would soon leave the likes to fend for themselves, this was revolutionary and extremely progressive. This would prove especially protective and opportunistic for someone like Ruth, who technically wasn't really gonna, couldn't really be a benefactor of this because she was a foreigner, but Naomi was going to vouch for her, for her integrity and for her worthiness of this sort of clause. She could have easily been removed from her husband's family and estate. She could have be easily been cast out of the land in general. But in this case, she would have been protected by the law and given special benefits, not meant to hold her back, but to help her up if she was in a vulnerable situation. So as Ruth comes into a land that she'd never known before with her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law would have been very well aware that Ruth's story wasn't going to end, that it really could have a new beginning because she could technically be, uh, hold on to the land that her father-in-law and her husband once had that Naomi could not get because she was too old to remarry, but Ruth could be the benefactor of and that it would always be hers, protected for her by this clause written into the Jewish law. So we're told her in-law's relative um, is Boaz so that we're clued in to where this story is going. She doesn't realize that she's going to this field. Naomi doesn't realize it yet, but we're told this part of the, we're told this so that we are prepared for what's to come. So now in Ruth 2.2 is where the story picks up as far as our characters are concerned. Now this also requires a bit of explanation. We read the words glean and we read her refer to uh, in, the, in the field in whose sight I may find favor. Now again, we got to talk about this because this is also very important. Uh, another system built into the law to protect the weak and less fortunate was, was the gleaning initiative or the gleaning program. This was one of the many aspects of the law that was not enforced by Jewish authorities, but was just as important to God's heart as any other law in the Bible. Again, in fact, the fact that it wasn't enforced because it was so extravagant, which might be because it so reflected God's heart that man's heart rejected it and rationalized against it. Now, I want to look at one of our favorite books of the Bible, which is the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is going to explain this for us. A quick note on it, Leviticus. What's the word or idea that comes to mind when you think of Leviticus? It's probably holiness. As in, it talks about the holiness of God and the standards of God. Now, most of the book is about procedures for worship, but the latter half gets into practice and lifestyle. Now, I want you to pay attention to probably the most important chapter in Leviticus, Leviticus 19. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So chapter 19 is about, okay, you know how to worship, you know what day of the week to do it on, what to wear, when to go, and how to do it. Now, here's how you should live. So if you want to be like your God, if you want to know your God, here's what you need to know. He's holy, and you need to be holy too. 
And the rest of the chapter goes on to talk about the things that we should do to be holy like God, things that will most reflect God's holiness and allow His holiness to come and be channeled through us. Now get a load of Leviticus 19 verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edges. Neither shall you gather the gleanings or what you drop after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner or the stranger. And this is God's justification for that. I am the Lord your God. This is what I want you to do. No questions. Notice there's a lot of yours in there, isn't it? Your vineyard, your land, your field, your, 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 your. You guess, guess what? Really, it's God's. And if you want to experience the holy God, and you want to be holy like him, this is something you all can do. Now, the reason why this was not enforced by the Jewish authorities is because they did not like the implications of this. We wouldn't either. Because they wanted to keep all that was theirs. God said, nah. You leave the four corners for the poor and the stranger. And if you drop something, don't go back and get it. If there's some left over, you leave it there. And make sure you don't pick everything off every vineyard. That's not for you. Who are you to tell me what's mine? And God says, I am the Lord. You're God. Now, at the end of this chapter, God signs off by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. We've heard of that before, haven't we? Now, a chapter about experiencing God's holiness, about being holy, turns out to be all about being kind and extending kindness. Wow. Especially to those that aren't like you. You know what that tells us? That when we think holy, we should think love. And when we think love, we should think kind because God has been kind to us out of the abundance of his holiness. That's what gleaning was all about. Choosing to leverage your field for the poor, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, all the, to allow them to gather grain from the corners, any stalks that you drop. This is repeated not once, not twice, but three times. Again, in Deuteronomy. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. Well, I can't. If I don't go back and get it, somebody else will get it. That's the point. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you. Whoa, 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 what does that mean? As in, if you want to really be blessed by God, learn to do as God does. As in, live with kindness flowing from his heart. And again, it wasn't just about doing for others for the sake of others. It was about an invitation to truly experience God. Because as we talked about, God's brand of holiness is so pure, he takes responsibility for a mess he did not make. We can't comprehend that, can we? But we can learn about it and we can follow his model. We resist this because we allow the devil to talk us out of it because we see people that we don't think deserve something and we feel like we're losing something. And if that's how God's people see the world, if that's how God's people see other people, then the devil's already won. 
So, you want to know God? Walk in His holiness. You want to know holiness? Walk in His love. You want to know God's love? Walk in His kindness. And refuse to let anybody or anything talk you out of it. Because they will. This will take you beyond religion, beyond self-righteousness, beyond a game of who's better, who's deserving, to a place where you see God for who He is and who He has made you. Boaz was one of the rare people willing to walk this path. This was not a normal custom in his day. People rarely did this. You read the prophets, they condemn Israel for not doing this. But Boaz was one of the few that did. And Ruth would obviously benefit from it, just how we all find benefit from Christ, who left more than just the corners for us. But more on that in a minute. Look at verse 3. It says, She left and went and gleaned in the field of the reapers, after the reapers, and she happened to, as in it just so happened, that she came into the field of Boaz, someone who was a relative of of Elimelech. Now, I, I think the writer is wanting us to think, well, this isn't a coincidence, is it? I mean, she thinks it is. She doesn't realize this is going on. But we need to talk about the difference between coincidence and providence. Because Ruth thinks, and the writer is making kind of a wink at us by saying, oh, just coincidentally, she went into Boaz's field, but we know there's more to it, don't we? It's important that Christians know the difference and make the distinction. In a world that believes everything is random and, and happens unrelated to one another, we should be the people that remind them otherwise. Ruth came into the chapter because of her poverty. In her poverty... She was at the mercy of favorable provisions, but little did she know providence was greater than her poverty. Coincidence at its best can bump into our stories, but providence jumps into our stories and enters and intervenes our stories. You know, there's an old proverb that we all say all the time. Everything happens for a reason. As in nothing happens that doesn't have something uh, to, that, that is intended to, to follow up that matters or makes a difference or means something. You know, I don't know if that's true. It's not biblical. We just kind of say it. I, I don't know and I don't think the Bible teaches that everything is intended or inspired by God. But I do know that everything happens right in front of him. I do know that. I, I do know that he either causes it or he allows it. And this story teaches us a better proverb than, well, everything happens for a reason. This story teaches us that everything that happens is redeemable. As in Ruth was just so happening to walk into a field that was related to, a man was related to her father-in-law. So this tells me this, we don't know why the previous stuff happened, the sin of, of Judges 19, the tragedy of Lot, the thorn of Moab, the breakdown of Israel. We don't know why that happened, and I don't think God wanted that stuff to happen, but He let it happen, and He didn't judge them in response. And what this tells me is that everything happens is can be redeemable. Everything happens for, as in God, can redeem everything. If we will just pay attention to what He is doing and the invitation He is giving us, if we respond and pursue Him, everything that happens is redeemable. Everything happens for God's redemption to make a difference through and in. The key verses here are verse 10 and 13. 
as Ruth expresses exasperation and overwhelming joy for how Boaz is treating her. She falls on her face and she says, how have I found favor in your sight? Not only am I a widow, not only uh, do you not know me, but I am a foreigner. I'm a Moabite. Naomi told me that I wouldn't have a chance. And here is a man that actually is following the Bible that no one else seems to be following. But Ruth didn't know the Bible. Ruth didn't know that Boaz was the exception, that they had a law that said this should happen, but clearly she found a man that was doing it. Again in verse 13, she says, let me find favor. You've spoken kindly to me. Remember, Naomi said, I hope that you find the kindness of God. And clearly she did, just not the way she thought she would. She mentions these words favor and kindness because she's well aware that Boaz was going above and beyond what is required of him. What's expected of him, what may be deserved by her. And hear me clearly, that's what kindness is all about. Kindness goes beyond what we expect, what, beyond what we deserve. Kindness doesn't base its dose on what the world requires. Kindness delivers the best because that's what love requires. You hear that? What was the logic for Leviticus 19? There was no logic. The Jews rejected it. But kindness says, there's no reason. The world doesn't determine what I give. My love for you determines what I give. And that means there's no limit. Hello? That means it's not based on what I want or what I can afford or what I think makes sense. It's based on my love for you. And my love for you is endless. I mean, who, who in the world would ever look at someone like that? That's how God looks at you. And that shows just how far we are from that kind of love, isn't it? God's kindness is how God's loyal love is communicated. He puts His love in motion through kindness. Kindness is how we determine what kind of brand God's love is. The possession and provision of His love. Ruth 2 is a dictionary example of God's kindness. It's all about God's kindness. Boaz is full of God's kindness. Again, what's important to remember about God's kindness, it cannot be explained because it's already above and beyond what we deserve. Here's an important distinction. See, love can be understood because love can be reciprocated. As in, if I love you, you can love me back. And we can have some sort of mutual understanding. Well, I love you this much and you love me the same, so we're going to do for each other as we do for each other, right? We understand there's an equality. But you cannot understand God's kindness and we can't understand true kindness when we give it to other when someone gives it to us because it comes from a place of sheer generosity and total deference toward others as in it comes from a place of I'm going to exalt you higher than myself I'm not going to limit it I'm not going to rationalize it I'm not going to have an explanation for it I'm just going to exalt you as high as I can because kindness knows no limits that is the kindness of God toward us. That is God's response to us. We are unworthy, we are sinful, and what does God give us? His kindness. Israel deserved judgment. What did He give them? He gave them Ruth. Ruth did not know what she deserved, but she knew she didn't deserve this. And God gave her Boaz. 
The Apostle Paul alludes to God's kindness as being his choice way of getting our attention. Now, that's really important. We talked about how God's favor often intentionally contrasts our failure because God is exhibiting his forgiveness, how clearly he is for us. Romans 2.4 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? As in, what does God do to get our attention? It's not judgment or anger or threats. It's kindness. It's kindness. We must respond by all means. We'll get to that. Clearly, Boaz's kindness was melting Ruth's heart as intended by God for the short term and the big picture. Ruth thinks she's seen it all, but Boaz isn't done. Verse 14. Now Boaz said to her in the, at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. She sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her. She ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And listen to 16. And let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Let some handfuls on purpose fall for her. Leave it there that she may glean it and do not rebuke her. And as she comes back and gets more and more and more, you don't say a word. Handfuls of purpose. Let grain fall purposely for her. Now, I want you to get this. This is so big. Purposeful kindness. Kindness is on purpose. As in, it's not just accidental. It's not just, well, I just kind everybody and it just kind of randomly falls. No, kindness is directed and delivered from God for us. And if we're going to show kindness to other people, it ought to be the same. It's on purpose. It's directed and delivered from God, signed, sealed, delivered to us. Now, I think we see where this is going. Don't you see this is the gospel? Maybe you've heard the gospel confused with or complicated by other things, but this is what Jesus did for us on the cross, what he's done for every one of you. He held back your punishment and took it for you. He poured out his forgiveness and brings it to you. When we deserve judgment, He delivered kindness. And He continues to deliver kindness. A far cry from the way that we want the world to work. From the way that our hearts work. This is God's heart toward us. This was how Boaz reflected God's heart to, Bo to Ruth. Now, it's important to note that as this story explains, it's essential that we respond to this kindness. We cannot possibly receive from God's heart and hand and feel indifferent or entitled even. Every handful of grace should humble us. We should marvel at what manner of love God has given to us to rescue and save, forgive and deliver, as Ruth does. From this point in the story, Ruth runs home and tells her mother-in-law all that she's experienced, how this man clearly is smitten by her and how she feels the same. Down in verse 19, we pick up at that story. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. And she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be the Lord, be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. 
There's our word. Naomi said to her, this man is a relative of ours, one of our close relatives. He could be your redeemer. Ruth the Moabitess said, I love how we get reminded she's a Moabitess. This shouldn't be happening to her. Ruth the Moabitess said, he also said to me, you shall stay close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest, as in she was going to be protected by him. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, and the people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest, the wheat harvest. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Naomi makes it clear to Ruth that this is, this is a clearly a God-ordained opportunity and intends to play matchmaker if Ruth will allow it. Now, part of the Leverett clause was the woman had a choice. It was so much the woman's choice that she, she essentially had to propose to the man. Now, this was a great risk for a woman, especially in these times. Oftentimes, these proposals were done out of desperation and would feature men, let's say they weren't like Boaz and would take more than they gave. But it was up to Ruth. Would she present herself? Would she propose to Boaz? Did she trust him that much? You know, the act of suspending oneself at the mercy of another could lead in many directions. In the ancient world, it was almost foolish to do this. Many times women did it anyway because they had no other option. To do this would depend totally on the character of the one you're falling before. Ruth believed that Boaz was not like most men. She trusted him because he clearly was one of a kind. So after this, Naomi leads Ruth through the process which would involve Ruth approaching Boaz one night when he was in the winnowing barn. Again, I can't stress this enough how much trust is required on Ruth's part and how much integrity was required on Boaz's part. But then again, this was a match made in heaven. Over in chapter 3, verse number 6, this is how that story concludes. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drank and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of the grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down as a part of the custom, as a, as a sign of the proposal. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled. He turned himself, and there was a woman lying at his feet. And this is so powerful. And he says, who are you? He recognized her. But he was wondering all the ceremony and all this, but he knew what this was. Who are you? He didn't know her name, which makes this moment so powerful. Ruth was a Moabite name, but there was a very similar word in Hebrew that Boaz would have heard. So when she finally says, okay, I'll tell him my name, he, he won't understand it. But his fate would have it. In Hebrew, when she would have said the word, Boaz would have heard this word, Ruth, which the definition literally means his mate or his kind, his partner, his bride. The one of a kind man met one of his own kind, as in someone perfect for him. Her own name even suggested it. A match made by the kindness of God. You see, you and I, we're Ruth. 
We are God's chosen people, His mate, His kind, His bride. We don't deserve Him. We did not choose Him, but here we are. What will you do with this kind of favor? What will you do with this sort of kindness? We can do nothing but lay our lives down before Him, trusting that and knowing that He has our best in mind. He is truly one of a kind. You and I are invited every single day to cast ourselves, suspend ourselves before the Lord, knowing that we are right where we need to be. He has invited you and I, He has invited everybody here today to come and know Him, trust in Him, and find true life in Him. His kindness has been poured out abundantly, and it's very clear how He feels about you. It's very clear He has a plan for you, He has a purpose for you, He has a place for you. It, that cannot be disputed. Our hearts cannot be neutral to this. Our hearts cannot be numb to this. We feel this invitation. How great the kindness of our God is. How great the goodness of our God is. What will you do with this kind of match? With this kind of invitation? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for this story that expresses the kindness of God in a way that is just beyond us. The way Boaz was not so much worried about building his own kingdom in this world, but he was wanting to make a difference in someone else's life. Just so happened that as he was living that kind of godly, kind lifestyle that he ran across this woman that was looking for something great. Little did they both know that this was a match made in heaven as he was being kind, reflecting the kindness of God. And here we are all these years later, and our story is Ruth's story. We have no place in this, in this story. We have no, no deserving in this story, yet you have given us a place. You have given us our own chosen place in the story of redemption. You've called each and every one of us by name, and you invite us to know you, to come and trust you to suspend ourselves before you in total faith. God, all we can do is, is just respond in humility and marvel at how great and how good and how kind you are. God, I pray there's somebody in the house today that they've never heard you describe this way and they feel your kindness pull at their heart. Lord, let them make a decision today that would change their life. Let them come before you and trust in you and give their life to you and for, be forgiven of their sin and be delivered from their past. Lord, for everyone else, let us find renewal and rededication in this amazing promise that we could have never deserved, yet it's been freely given. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.